0: Welcome to the Vancouver International Film Festival podcast, a podcast dedicated to some of the most exciting live conversations that happen at the festival in our year round program. I'm your host, Ken Tsui, Director of Creative Engagement and Live Programming here at the festival. And in this episode, we present Oscar nominated costume designer Ariane Phillips. Known for her cutting edge designs and for being Madonna's stylist, Phillips has had her costume designs recognized with three Oscar nominations. Walk the Line, W.E., and most recently, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Her distinguished costume designing career also includes stylish works including A Single Man, Kingsman, The Secret Service, 310 to Yuma, and the classic Hedwig and the Angry Inch. In this talk recorded at the festival, Phillips discusses her process with culture writer and film critic, Nathalie Atkinson.
1: who has seen Once Upon a Time? OK, all right, it's not that there's spoilers, but you know, it's just good to know. Um, I know you probably get this question a lot, but you grew up in Northern California and you uh, have worked in, in fashion styling and as a designer on film and, and on stage. How did you sort of get into that? What's the, what's the circuitous route that happened?
2: Twisty, twisty, <laughs> not linear um, and not traditional. Um, I just have to say that I was raised in Northern California, Mm -hmm. um, but we spent almost a year in BC when I was a kid. My parents were bohemian um, kind of... In the '70s, when the lot—they weren't draft dodgers, but they were—they came up here to kind of go back to the land. And we spent nine months in the Okanagan Valley, and I have such fond memories of being a Canadian brownie. Um, Um, Look for that in a uniform
1: inspiration sometime. In a a, (laughs) um,
2: but, I you know I was raised in a family of artists, and my parents really made um, a decision to. Uh, break away from the traditional uh, way that they were raised, and they encouraged my sister and I to kind of f- express ourselves artistically. And um, and so I, uh, my, we didn't have a television. Um, which was kind of a trend, I think, in the 70s. I also wasn't allowed to have Barbie dolls. So I kind of went the opposite way. (laughs) I became (laughs) obsessed with pop culture. And, um, you know, it was, I guess, the ultimate rebellion, but also at the same sense, I was raised in a youth culture movement because my parents were very young when they had me. So I think that was the kind of the fertile ground for this kind of um, unusual career, I would say. I mean... It's. It has been. Um, I, I often say that I have crafted a career based on my creative ADD, um, and and I mean that kind of in jest because uh, just I've chosen to uh, try things that. Um, so I don't know. I'm. I'm. Go- I digress. I I don't have a traditional education. I moved to New York. Uh, to continue college from the Bay Area and I wanted to go into fashion styling and I guess my serendipity beginning was that um, my friend at the time, sister went to high school with Lenny Kravitz who needed a place to stay when he was recording his first record Uh and um, we kind of came up together and that was got me a lot of I think I super lucky to have that notoriety because he's so talented, and right. and we were able to um, work together on the visual side.
1: Well, and this is New York, sort of just after the Mud Club and all those sort of that kind of era, right? 86. So there's yeah, so there's all this cross pollination anyway, right, of music and fashion and everything. Yeah, right? I mean,
2: what we were doing was um, uh, yes, it was it was very yeah, it was post kind of Madonna's era, I right. guess. Okay. Um, we're going, to talk,
1: we're going to start talking a little bit about, the, about costume design and we'll come back to, to fashion. Um, but costume and fashion are, are kind of often conflated. Uh, people get them, you know, they assume that they're the same thing. So, like, we're, let's, what, what is your now working definition of costume design and its role and how it sort of differs from fashion? Sure.
2: Um, costume design is really about creating characters and, um, and which in, in turn tell the story. Um, Fashion is a timeline of relevance. So to me, um, fashion is a reflection of what's happening in our culture at any given time. So whether it's a Gainsborough painting from the 18th, 17th century to a You know, Vogue magazine in the 60s, fashion is a cultural reference of what is relevant in a a moment in time. So, fashion is part of the research, just in terms of not every character is fashionable, but just seeing um, kind of this heightened, stylized version of what the culture is about. Um, So, uh, as a Fashion stylist, it's like more curation, hunting and gathering, working with, um, which is how I started, Um, uh, you know, working uh, as a freelance stylist in the early days in New York, um, just on straight up fashion. It was about kind of, um, in those days, it wasn't as much about advertising as it is now in magazines. When you well, magazine, the magazines that are left because mm-hmm. now we're changing again. We're going through a, a digital revolution where magazines are having to reinvent themselves digitally. But um, a lot of what you see editorially in a fashion magazine from like Flair to Vogue to whatever it is, you, if you're interested in reading that, usually it's a reflection of who's advertising in the magazine, unfortunately, now. Because magazines are, are dying um and they they have to stay alive, so um that's been going on for the last ten years it's It's not as creative as it was like when I started in the eighties where um we Kind of, we would make things for fashion shoots. We'd come up with concepts and then we'd hunt, I would hunt and gather from fashion designers. Which is much more that
1: era of like face ID, exactly. those sort of magazines. And right? that's what really yeah.
2: informed me street fashion and everything. But fashion can also be narrative and c- conceptual and it's, it's tableau work. It's, I love photography and I love working in print and I feel that it's helped me in terms of details. Um, and the minutiae of design and balance. Styling is, being a fashion editor is really about balance, so I felt like my, it was a great um, training ground for me um, just in terms of design and color uh, for my eventual, um, uh, you know, eventually getting into film. If that makes
1: sense. But And your, your fashion work is often very narrative and the sort of narratives that you... Do you know whether it's a Madonna concert tour? There's sort of it's it's a it's it's still commentary. Like there's a sometimes there's a cultural Hopefully. commentary on it. So I mean, I'm
2: more attracted to that yeah. than lifestyle. I'm much more into stylized, yeah. and I have gravitated to collaborate with photographers or artists who also think in this in the narrative sense. So in the beginning of my career, I certainly worked with all kinds of photographers and all kinds of, but um, yeah. Um, Well, one of the examples I always think of with your work in
1: terms of illustrating the way in which maybe a a costume gives you clues about a character or gives you sort of these, sort of, it's this paradox, right, because it's supposed to be invisible, you're not supposed to notice it, it's almost subliminal to the audience, is the girl interrupted, which is another of your credits, and the choice to put Angelina Jolie's character in suede pants, like there's a lot of very tactile things in her character, you know like it's it, observant it seems, that's observant
2: I mean the thing for me I really believe costumes are me up suit for an actor so of course costumes are really important in uh, for visual cues for the audience um, to underscore tone and feeling and um, and tell us that It's about identity, right? How we dress ourselves. But I also believe that as a costume designer, my job is also to inform the actor to help them get there. Um, So I think of the costume physically as a beam me up suit, Um, and I I, that inspiration came early on from um, when I was in high school. I thought I wanted to be an actor, and I read. uh, Stanislavski books and Uda Hagen and um, there's a quote from Lawrence Olivier that he said he always started with his character from the shoes up and that just resonated for me um, even at that time when I thought I wanted to be an actor because of the physicality of the costume and how it can inform the actor and then um, early on my um Second movie, which was Tank Girl, which is based on a graphic novel, um, Malcolm McDowell uh, was cast, which I just was beside myself with excitement mm-hmm. because I'd been kind of raised on his films by my parents. And um, he came, uh, we, we were doing a f- uh, fitting, it was, you know, actors oftentimes are you know, they're very prolific where they're moving from they'll do two weeks here on a movie and a month here and they're not always with you in the whole whole time. And he had I it's pre internet, so I, I didn't have any communication with him. I never talked to him. I was really nervous. And I had to he was working three days after I would fit him and I had to I designed almost like eighty percent of the costumes in Tank Girl from yeah, it wasn't a shopped movie. So all his costumes were built without him. So I was really nervous that he might walk in and say, oh, none of this is right. I don't like this, or this isn't what I was thinking. And um, just the opposite happened. He came in, and he was so grateful because he hadn't had time to do research about the character. And he was like, this, thank you so much. I didn't know who, I, you know, I haven't had time. I, I really don't know who my character is, and you've helped me so much. So um, that really informed me as a young costume designer about how I can help assist an actor. And that was is super, was and is super inspiring to me. Well,
1: um, it's interesting that you say that it f- start with the
2: shoes because there's someone who really likes
1: to shoot and there's a lot of shots of f- feet and shoes in, oh, yes. in uh, Once Upon a Time. Um, can you tell us how... Um, how does the, was the pitch or the brief, the way you you and Quentin Tarantino kind of came to work together different than, it, typically than it would have been? Like did you pitch sort of ideas once you were approached or did you approach him and, and like how did it come about?
2: Um, well, um, the the way that I got the movie was um, really by chance mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know, Quentin's been on my like dream list. I never actually really thought I would ever get the chance to work with him. I I worked with him once on a photo shoot when he was promoting Inglorious Bastards. And um, I actually styled him um, on a photo shoot and um, didn't dare say, oh, I'm a costume designer too. But I, I, I just remember kind of having an epiphany that day that I'll probably never get to work with him as a costume designer. And, you know, you do these photo shoots and they're fleeting. But I really... Kind of got him that day, and um, I'm such a fan of his work. So, um, yeah, I was super curious on, on, on how the process would be with him. Um, it's a, I, I don't know, let's see how, dive in. Um, so, I was working on another film that was set in, in Los Angeles, in Northern California in the 70s, and it was actually a film about Patty Hearst. Uh, which uh, growing up in the Bay Area in California was a story that existed in my childhood. So I was really excited about it. That film um, I worked on for about three weeks with Jim Mangold, who I'd done five, I've done five films with. And that film went um, down, like after three weeks of prepping it. And I was heartbroken. And the whole time that I was prepping that movie, the producer kept saying, you need to go into the costume house and get... Your stock for your background. Um, I'm, I'm sure lots of people here know what I mean by that. But mm. stock meaning um, like all my my period clothes from different costume houses to dress my background and some day players. And he said because Quentin Tarantino is doing a movie set in L.A. in the '60s or the '70s, he thought it was the '70s, and we need to get those clothes. So get in there, get in there. <laughs> right. And then the, And so I knew he was working on movies. Okay. So the day the movie went down, I had to call my agent. I said, oh, if there's any way you can find out if Quentin's hired a costume designer, I'm sure he has. So um, lucky for me, to make a long story short, I um, got the opportunity to interview with him. And uh, before that, I got to read the script. And when I went to go read the script, it was, um, I had to read it at the office, and it was kept in a safe and, um, it's just like they, Margaret Atwood's *The Testaments*.
1: So you yeah, have to go in a locked room, and exactly, okay. it was
2: uh, not not like anything I'd ever experienced. I think once I read a Michael Mann script, and I had to read it, but it wasn't in a safe, so I had to read it in the office. But um, I couldn't have my cell phone, and I couldn't have a pen and paper. So I knew that re- after I read the script, I wanted to make a presentation to. for him uh, of my impressions of how I would go about it. So I was completely freaked out because it usually takes me two or three times to read a script to get it in my head. How am I going to read this script and absorb it and be able to do a a worthy presentation? So that was anxiety producing. But then once I started reading the script, which they warned me would take two hours, um, which it took me about two and a half, Normally, it takes me about an hour, an hour and a half to read a script. This was almost double because Quentin's, I mean, his writing is, um, I'm sure that he probably has released, I don't even know, like his scripts. Mm-hmm. Uh, people can probably get them places. But he's such a descriptive writer, and um, it was so rich, richly layered, so full of details that I magically absorbed it <laughs> and um, it was, I think, without question, the best script I've ever read and I enjoyed it so much and was so inspired to to um, to do a good job, to get right. the job <laughs> um, in terms of a presentation. So I did that. I put a presentation together um, and I sent it to his office ahead of my meeting um, and um, I made it um, kind of a sexy presentation. I put like a Hawaiian shirt in there and I put like some brill cream are in you, there. And are some you vintage- a Pinterest user or what were you, were you like grabbing no, things? No no, like no, a- no, 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 no. I made two really big books of visual okay. reference and then I actually put physical things in a box. Oh. Um, like a, a Hawaiian shirt that would fit him, a vintage one. Um, Is that the one we see him in in the the behind-the-scenes shots
1: from the movie? No, he has his
2: own (laughs) array of Hawaiian shirts. Um, And that was one of the things that was so exciting about reading the script as a costume designer is we know how iconic these characters are that he's created. And, um, you know, you read that um, Cliff Booth, uh, the character Brad Pitt plays, Um, in the script is wearing a Hawaiian shirt and immediately like I'm thinking of true romance and I'm thinking of Tim, you know, Christian Slater and Tim Roth and, you know, the language, the vernacular of the style of Quentin Tarantino Mm -hmm. is consistent. So um, I was super curious what the collaboration would be like. I had heard a lot of crazy rumors. Mm-hmm. And um, when we first had that meeting, I thought, well, if I'm comfortable with him in my interview, I would ask him his process, if I felt comfortable. Because right. <laughs> he's intimidating, he's physically tall, and he's very enthusiastic, and he gesticulates, and he stands up, and he's incredible, but he's a little intimidating, he's Quentin Tarantino. So, um, he asked me as many questions as I asked him. Uh-huh. And, I, and he, one of the things he asked me was if I was... He said that whenever he writes about costume in the script, that he means it. Uh-huh. So when he writes a Hawaiian shirt, he means he wants to see a Hawaiian shirt when he writes a leather jacket. And, you know, most of the time when there's scripted costume, like a red dress or whatever is in the script... I would say like 80% of the time my experience has been the director saying, oh, it's not literally that. We'll figure out what that is. Mm -hmm. And this was the first time he said, nope, I mean exactly what I've written. And, um, And I said, okay. And he goes, but if you have another idea, bring it to the table. So make me that Hawaiian shirt, but also make me what you think would be good. And that to me was... Um, so exciting uh-huh. because not only does he have, obviously, um, a, a strong point of view and an idea of what he's thinking visually, but he's open to other ideas as well. So um, that wasn't the question you asked me. You asked me what the and, – and at that at, – at my – the first day after I got the job, he handed me a list – this is more answering a question – of reference, okay. of television, shows – and um films to watch and there is no way in hell i could have watched all these like i mean i had seen a couple of them a right. few of them but this was uh an extensive list but lucky for us quentin does movie nights when right. he's yes. he's prepping so he owns a theater in la called the new beverly if you're ever in la you should go it's a great screen they're usually 35 millimeter prints it's the, the the candy and the popcorn are the same price as they probably were when we were kids. Um, it is fabulous. Um, and he was renovating the theater when we were prepping the film. And so um, once a week, he would have um, movie night, and he would show movies that were shot in LA in the late '60s. So we watched all kinds of amazing movies, and it was incredible. The first time I went to one of these screenings. Um, like the horse wrangler was there, and like the gaffer was there, mm-hmm. and my experience with um, any kind of, you know, projected dailies or I, I actually have never worked on a film when a director shown a film to to the to the crew, but usually it's it's like department heads, right, and right. talent and producers, and this is so great. Everyone would come to these weekly screenings so it really created a sense of camaraderie right so everyone's on the
1: same page when you're shooting Mm -hmm. because you're also shooting on 35 which means that you're not looking at a monitor when you're looking at the what's what's happening right there's
2: no monitor except for bob richardson the cinematographer had a little monitor on the camera that if you were lucky enough to get close you could look at it or quentin sometimes had a handheld monitor um but no um no monitors, no cell phones um on the set at all. Uh, matter of fact, if if you have if you if your cell phone rings or you're caught with one that the the threat was that you're fired. Oh wow. And okay. and Quentin made that that um <laughs> which was actually great. It was so wonderful because it really means everyone's present. And um it's a really collaborative group of people, a, a true family. So it was unlike anything I've ever experienced. Well, so what were some of the, I mean, there are these extensive lists, and I've seen
1: different variations in different people from the film uh, talking about the references that resonated for them. What were some of the, 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 the more salient ones for you that helped you get a sense of what he was going for? Because it's such a, a Russian nesting doll. I mean, you think, oh, it's just, you know, three days in the life, but there's all these flashbacks within flashbacks and all kinds, you know, it's like a movie within a movie. So was there something in particular that you went, oh, I get it, that unlocked it? Or did the three, I mean, you've worked on Westerns in the sense of the nocturnal animals, the sort of the West, the the, the way those men dress uh, in sort of the Western
2: style or the 310 to Yuma. Um, Did that inform some of the... Um, Well, I think the greatest thing for a costume designer and for me uh, working on this film is that It is, there are, it's about real life events and they're real, they're biographical characters that real people that existed. And at the center of that is a fictional, two fictional characters. So usually I've done a few biopics. um, And so usually that uh, process for me is quite linear. You know, you just amass as much, of what was and and make decisions that are, you know, aligned with how the director see, you know, like that. But for this, we had, um, so it was super juicy mm-hmm. for me. So you have Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth, who are fictitious characters, you know, that are inspired by, you know, all kinds of different actors and Hollywood types that Quentin would share with us. And um, and then all these real-life characters. So the research process was fantastic and a lot of fun and incredible. And, I mean, um, so much resonated. I mean, it was really good to see Lancer, the real Lancer. Mm-hmm. Um, that really helped. Um, and, you know, uh, a lot of different TV shows and movies. I don't know, I guess it was just, like, I can't, you know, it was great to, I, I watch a lot of, of of TV shows and movies with Robert Culp. Um, Quentin really likes He's him He's the a best lot.
1: Columbo villain
2: ever. <laughs> he really is, yeah. He was super stylish. Yeah. Um, I loved him in Bob, Ted, Carol, and Alice. Yeah. Um, I mean, so much. It was, it was... Uh, a lot of fun. So I'm
1: hoping we can maybe unpack the three principal characters and sort of w- around them and I, even though there's these there's this incredible richness and hopefully we get to that of the background and the subcultures that you're kind of playing on because it's not a homogenous Los Angeles in 1969 at all, right? You've got all these moving parts, these different kind of yeah, subcultures. So we we've got Cliff and I, I put a lot of photos of, uh, there's some photos of Steve McQueen, because Steve McQueen kind of haunts the movie in so many different ways. Like, he mm. informs the movie, in, um, and he's oh, in the movie. That's so cool, that picture of Luke. And, oh. yeah, the, the, the gentleman cowboy. Kind of. I've never um, seen that picture of Luke. Oh. Um, so can we, can we maybe take a look at, like, so Leonardo DiCaprio's character, who wears sort of one particular jacket throughout a lot of the film like the the leather jacket mm-hmm. and you you built the, you built most of the principals or all of the principals clothes he right he has like, a
2: couple leather you know, jackets yeah. there's one we built and then there's a vintage one um, well i mean you kind of can't you kind of can't talk about one without talking yeah, about the other, other. i mean um, here you got this character Rick Dalton who is has found himself you know, at this point, he has been this big TV Western star, and he hasn't quite made that transition like Steve McQueen or other actors of his generation to being a movie star, and his career's on the downward trajectory. And here his, his guy, Cliff Booth, um, wow, what's that? That's people assembling their cosplay for Halloween. (laughs) uh, That's hilarious. Actually, I have to say, in my initial interview with Quentin, he said to me, my mark of uh, great costumes are when people imitate my characters, and it takes effort because you can't buy those costumes in a box. Right, yeah, you can't get the Darth Vader helmet or whatever. (laughs) That was kind of like his, um, I think, call to action for me of like, Kind of freaked me out, but well, it's, um, <laughs> it's like okay, pressure's on. But um, anyway, so um, Rick and Cliff, yeah. So Rick is, you know, um, he's finding himself at a, a point of uh, where he is redundant, basically. And Hollywood's changing. You know, the thing about nineteen sixty nine is it's just, and it's it's in the core of the script. It's really the a change it's such a change it reminds me a lot of now how we are changing into this digital culture um and you know it's so interesting as a costume designer just the that period because when you take us when you looking at a lot of reference and um i'm the same age as quentin so i i have kind of you know fuzzy memory romantic childhood seven-year-old memories of the time but um a, a slice of that culture and you really just see a little bit of everything and you see you see how people are changing from, you know, like Rick Dalton still wears his hair in that 50s kind of pompadour with product in his hair. And this is when, like, Peter Fonda is making Easy, Risa, R- e- Easy Rider and, um, you know, Dennis Hopper and, you know, he is not, um, he's not, He's not relevant, really. No, and he's sort of the last.
1: He, he feels like he, you know the kind of guy who was trained in the studio system. He was one of the last contract players who like learned how to ride and you know all the different things. And then he doesn't really know how to adapt to this new kind of acting style either, right? This sort sure, of method absolutely. style. Sure, absolutely.
2: And then the Brad Pitt's character Cliff Booth is his longtime stuntman and. You know, obviously he's invested in this guy, right? He's mm-hmm. been his guy, and and Rick's career has unfortunately, yeah, it hasn't panned out for him either. And we kind of see that. We see the way he he lives. And you know, Quentin did something really interesting in, in the script in that that whole idea uh, that of the rumor that Cliff Booth uh, killed his wife, but you don't really know. It's like a rumor about him, which I think was is really interesting because as a stunt man it makes him um, unpredictable as a character, it makes him unpredictable because his job is a stuntman and he's, you know, um, I think it it's such a interesting profession just in terms of the kind of personalities. I mean, it, it, you know, what kind of people, like, throw themselves off buildings. Well, the way he drives,
1: I mean, it's really... There's these moments where you see how he drives when he's alone in the car that kind of tell you exactly what his personality is, this sort of risk-seeker kind of
2: thing. Yeah, and, and, um, you know, I think that adrenaline... You know, I think there's something really... You know, we that we don't we don't really know about him the whole Mm -hmm. way through, which without for the people that haven't seen the movie, but really informs us as we go along and where we end up. Um, And I just uh, I just thought that you know Cliff's character just has uh, Brad's character has such a ease to him, and he's the support guy. He even says it in the opening Mm -hmm. scene when they're being interviewed. Um, And there there are some uh, moments in the in the script that I just loved where I got to make costumes, uh, double costumes, which all the time as a costume designer, there's other people who work in costume. I mean, there's or work on film sets. You know what it's like to see like the actor and his stunt person or her stunt person walking around in the same costume with a, A lousy wig I mean it's it's hilarious so um, we get to see that in the movie too which is sort of like
1: there's a level of wit there that's sort of like working on top of it so
2: yeah it's super fun to work on a movie about Hollywood when you are in Hollywood. there's a few
1: in there's a few well there probably there's probably more than a few in jokes, but there's that one line that the uh, the producer I think of the pilot says, you know, I want it Zeitgeisty, eighteen sixty nine, but nineteen sixty nine and I'm thinking, Oh, every costume the director, design yeah. the director it was groaning. I'm thinking that's probably happened to you. Oh, like sure. this,
2: they, <laughs> when the, when he's in the trailer and he's telling Rick he wants him to wear a mustache and this a cool um Suede coat with fringe that you'd see on Sunset Boulevard, and yeah. he's like, "I don't want to be a hippie, like you know, right?" That part. See
1: that moment funny. I come, I totally saw Outlaw Country there. Like I was like, Waylon Jennings was
2: what I kept picturing oh, right, 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 um, right. with that character.
1: But well, I want to ask, fun about fact the,
2: though, I have oh, to say, oh. the costume designer in that scene—I don't know if you guys remember—the costume designer who was asked to make the jacket for Rick Dalton mm-hmm. is actually the costume designer from Hateful Eight. Courtney Hoffman.: Oh okay. Yeah. So who's, oh. Um, who's wonderful. She's a director now, yeah, right. a director writer, and she had a, she, she put in a good word for me, and she's um, for getting this movie, and so that was super fun. Oh nice. Most, I would say that probably 40 percent of the crew has cameos in I mean, not that Courtney's part of our crew, but 40 percent of the shooting crew had cameos in the movie. Okay. Do I you? No, and that's the thing. You kind of have to earn your stripes. Oh. Um, most of these people, all those people, have been worked on other Quentin movies. So the
1: tenth Quentin Tarantino movie, oh, hopefully, maybe. If I'm okay. invited back. Um, well, if I had to think of one way to describe um, Cliff's. Uh, cost, his main his icon it's now iconic because people are assembling their Halloween costumes. And Champion has reissued or, you know there's be, um, there's been reissues of the t shirt and stuff.
2: Really? Yeah. I didn't even know yeah. that. that happened the Champion t shirt is full Quentin that happened in the fitting. It was a white t shirt with um, you know we figured out what the with Brad Quentin and I we figured out what the motif and what the color of the Hawaiian shirt would be. And um and Quentin's like, it'd be really cool if he had a champion shirt, spark plug t-shirt. I'm like, okay. So we But we he's made
1: so it. mellow. Like everything about his costume is mellow. And it comes down to the footwear. Because, you know, I was the thinking moccasin. about that. So the moccasins, which I'm thinking they're on a Western. So, you know, you have Rick Dalton who kind of, in the way they, they did at the time, kind of, adopts his persona in real life a little bit so that people, you know, when fans meet him, he's sort of got the Western boots. And then you get Cliff, who, of all the things he could pick out on a Western, it's the indigenous moccasin kind of thing that's, like, Mm. stealth and makes no sound. I don't know. It just sort of seemed, like,
2: very unexpected. I like that. My thinking was... We watched Billy Jack, and right. which informed And Tom I put a photo Laughlin. of him in
1: here. I put a, a photo of him for you.
2: And um, the, the, as we call it in America, the Canadian tuxedo, denim on denim. We call, <laughs> we call it the Texas tuxedo up here, just so you yeah. know. You do? That's hilarious. We call it the Texas tuxedo, yeah. That's so funny. So he's wearing the Texas Canadian tuxedo. Right. Um, and, and in Billy Jack, Tom Laughlin is, when he does those badass moves, he's barefoot which is just, like, the ultimate, right? Like, you always think of those guys as having, you know, shit-kicker boots. So I thought how cool it would be that he has very soft shoes, something that um, where, you know, if you think about moccasins, to me, they're very vulnerable. You can almost feel the ground. And I also thought that it was, you know, Quentin and I talked a lot about Cliff, and he wasn't, Cliff isn't as kind of, Cliff is changing a bit with the times. His hair is a little shaggier. He's he's very relaxed in what he wears, but the idea that those moccasins had a little bit of a... What was relevant at the Mm -hmm. time, a little referential. I like the Western thing that I, yeah, that too. That could be part of it too. Why not? Who knows? I mean, that that um, I love that. But I had been thinking kind of a little bit. So we see him at Spawn Ranch. He's like a little bit. He's not, of course, he's not a hippie, but it's just a little bit of the fashion. He's in tune with it, and yet he's a little bit. You know, he's 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 aware that the times are changing. And there was something you found for his
1: costume that was quite serendipitous, right? That's. Kind of, yeah, one, that's the hard thing that people can't get in a box, I guess, right? Yeah. That's the element.
2: there. I mean, one of the greatest things about um, and the hunting gathering part of being a costume designer is finding having. Uh, I've had a few of these moments where I've come across something that really becomes like a character talisman. In this case, I found um this belt buckle at Warner Brothers Costumes, that Stuntman's Association belt buckle. I, and I called a friend of mine, as a stuntman. And he said, oh, yeah, the, those were, you know, you could, they don't do them anymore, but in the, you know, 60s and 70s, you could order a stunt, uh, if you were in the Stuntman's Association, you could order belt buckle. Well, this was just like... I just couldn't wait to tell Brad Pitt. I was like, I'm going to be his best. He's going to love me forever. and um, Because, you know, it's Brad Pitt and and Quentin, too, both of them. I just was so excited. I could barely control myself in our next fitting. Like, look what I found. And they loved it, too. And that just really came, the grounding. I knew that I wanted him to have something... um, so, something with gravitas, like a belt, belt buckle. Like I was looking at rodeo belt buckles, okay. actually. Um, and uh, like Hal Needham and guys like that, they were just... They They're just proud had of what swagger, they do, right? Right? Yeah. And swagger. So, so. so when I found that, which I didn't even know existed, um, that was everything for me. And that became my Laurence Olivier shoes. That okay. became my Cliff Booth kind of major point. Because he wears it with the, the white the, on throughout white
1: the throughout the, movie, the yeah. thing, um, which I love no, the airport. Oh, he no, doesn't he wear it with the white snakeskin snake snake
2: Or maybe he does. Maybe he does. I don't even remember.
1: I I Just love the airport picture. arrival scenes actually because it sort oh, of gives you nice. all this data without actually you know you sort of get a sense of what's happened to them wherever they may be. And he's in the the white on white. Um, is that his Italian kind of? That's what he's taken from Italy versus say like Rick Dalton coming back with maybe a little. Like a cravat or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he had a
2: cravat, like a neck scarf. Uh, Tommy mother's stuff. Right. Yeah. Oh. Um, yeah. The idea was that they, you know, they go to Italy. Um, they've made some money. They're, you know, it, they're they're buying clothes. they you know, the guys are back. You know, they're they're in the swing of things again. And um, yeah, was there? Um, Kind of lo- was
1: there any reason logistically you wanted um, Cliff in white? Because I mean, he's in at night, right? We see him walking at night. Is that was that part of it too? Like he's in the trousers, I think, when he's walking around the dog. Yeah, in the, yeah, the yeah, neighborhood. The or for teacher. I mean, it's a Quentin Tarantino well, movie, or for blood
2: splatter. Wet blood. Well, not no, blood. No, the, no, not uh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, no, no spoilers. Right? Okay, right. <laughs> Still potentially. Um, yeah. Well, for me, also uh, studying Quentin's movies. Um, something that I felt I had in common with Quentin is Quentin has a lot of black and white in his costumes. I really wanted to be part of his style vernacular. Like, I really wanted the costumes to feel like a Quentin film. So I spent a lot of time... uh, Of course, I'd seen all his movies, but I spent a lot of time looking at them again. Um, And one thing that... I love black and white as well, um, and I... You know, when you think of, like, Pulp Fiction and Uma Thurman and um, John Travolta and, um, you know, various different, and a sense of graphic, even the yellow Kill Bill with the black stripe or the, the you know, the... Yeah. Anyway, I just, I felt that it was a great way to kind of clean Cliff up and, um, and give him a little bravado. I think probably the same thinking I had with, um, uh, I, I mean it's it's interesting. O- over the years, I think I, I use color a lot, or the lack of it. So if I look back, I I think I have a tendency to go minimal in a way. It's like a high contrast, like yeah, when I think yeah. of some of
1: the we costumes and um, the the sort of. The the fabrics and things that you've used maybe or or for example the another serendipitous item I think was the Julianne Moore dress, in a single which is very graphic and and has sort of an interesting backstory. Yeah,
2: Winona Ryder striped shirt and grown Yeah, I mean I just have a tendency to to gravitate towards that. Um, uh,
1: I mean, was it fun being able to... Because there's some very literal recreation moments, and so So
2: you recreated... that
1: one right before. Yeah, the great escape. Yeah. um, Where you you were wanting to be literal there to completely do this. Yeah, because
2: we inserted Leo into the film, like in a zealot kind of way. Oh, it's actually... so that jacket we made... But that's different than the Musso and Frank's one. That's a gratuitous
1: Steve McQueen with his shirt open shot because the medallion seems to me the the thing that
2: yeah I took stuck that from with Steve me. McQueen for sure, um, and I knew uh, I've been trying to get a medallion in a movie I think for a while. But I like the <laughs> idea. A, my a friend of mine makes these amazing medallions, and he made that medallion with, and it's. Um, it's got his, uh, Rick Dalton's initials. There's another T-shirt there that came from Quentin as well, um, Lion Speedway, which is a uh, classic L.A., I guess, go-karty kind of place, Speedway. Okay. I don't know. Does anybody know it? I never knew it. I, I, didn't, I wasn't raised in L.A., but it's a real logo. and We recreated that shirt, but that was Quentin's idea. Okay. I mean, okay. you know, I think of Quentin like the UCSC um, – Oh, sorry. Yeah, UCSC Banana Slug t-shirt on um, John... That was actually a question I had from him in our first interview because oh, really? I'm from Santa Cruz and I wanted to know how that t-shirt came to be. So I knew the t-shirt message shirts would be... Would play in the movie. I was just waiting for Quentin to tell me what they were. Right.
1: Okay. Because Barbara Ling, the production designer, gets to do all these signs yeah, and all exactly. kinds of graphics, and then you get to sort of have a little yeah. bit of it. And then you know, here we're at a we're at. Um, well, tell us the story about this particular look. This is, I think, she wears it to the Rosemary's Baby
2: premiere. Uh, in real in life. In real life, right? um, Sharon Tate. Sharon Tate wore it was an Aussie Clark. Who's was a big fashion designer, English fashion designer in the '60s, um, and she, as I did some very deep research about it, it seems like that was bespoke; it was made for her, or she, you know, she had him make it um, for the Rosemary's Baby premiere in London. And um, I went on the hunt for it, which doesn't exist, so we recreated it um, with um, not real snake, not real python. Um, It's printed.
1: There's a sense that you, I mean, that that you didn't necessarily literalize. I mean, she's so well documented, though. But there's sort of a feel like if you look at photos of Sharon Tate in many of the books, you get a sense that of her taste. Like you really get a sense of what she might have purchased, and like the yellows. There's yellow comes back a lot in her kind of candid photos. Yeah, I used yellow
2: because I just felt it was a really beautiful. What was a very, uh, you know. popular color at that time that you see in fashion you see in in interior design you see in cars um and also i just loved yellow uh, the idea of it on on Margot um, and as sharon and just how yellow makes you feel positive and optimistic um, and i spent a lot of time with deborah tate sharon tate's sister mm-hmm. and uh the crazy thing is this happened on walk the line too it's just really odd um, on Walk the Line, when we were pre- prepping Walk the Line, um, Johnny uh, Johnny Cash and June's estate was uh, being cataloged for Sotheby's. They did a mm-hmm. catalog, and we didn't have access to it. And Jim Mangold, the director writer, had been very close with John uh, Johnny Cash, and um, we had thought we were going to have access to these effects of their of them, but then we we couldn't. Um, and then, when <laughs> we were prepping this movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, after 50 years, Deborah Tate decided to auction Sharon's, mm-hmm. some of Sharon's effects, which I just thought was so poignant in many ways um, to hold on to those items for her for 50 years. Um, I, I think has been, I, I can't imagine, well, you know, I can't imagine. Uh, she's been really the protector of Sharon's memory and everything. And for her to put some of those items um, on auction, I thought was a really wonderful place for her to be in and a very, you know, that she could kind of let go of some of the stuff. And Deborah's very generous with her time and luckily Quentin had already had developed a relationship with her so she was a consultant on her film and um I got to go see Sharon's clothes before they went on auction and touch them and and get a sense of the proportion and um and the fabrics too right I mean did you yeah I didn't and and that you know they were really delicate, and they were going to an auction, and um, I, I didn't really want to use them in the film. They actually weren't even pieces that would make sense for our film. Right. But I did ask Deborah if there's there's some costume jewelry, and I asked her if it would be possible to borrow that jewelry if Margot was interested to use in the film, I thought kind of like the belt buckle for Margot, that might be a very, you know, we all, you know, this is really a love letter to Sharon Tate from Quentin in so many ways and wanting to honor who she was and, and not you know all we all I really knew about Sharon Tate was who she was in death but I didn't really know who she what her life was like I mean I'd seen some of her movies so to be able to explore who she was and talk to her sister about her was really um great it was it was really helpful so to have a piece of some of her jewelry and Margot was really open to it and Quentin loved the idea so most of um the jewelry that Margot wore in the movie was Sharon's jewelry. Okay, was the bag,
1: because I know she had there's a lot of photos of her, and there, like Romy Schneider and a lot of actresses of that era were also wearing that Chanel bag, which is so incongruous when you think of sort of the yeah. era, but they all had the
2: kind of you know status bag in yeah, so many well, photos. Yeah, well, Sharon had that, that Chanel bag, yeah. and um, Margot Robbie happens to be a Chanel, Chanel ambassador, right, so. and I happen to know them, and I just thought that was also... It is a status bag. And I also thought it was really interesting. And you know, in, in terms of like, it tells us how kind of what her life, like her and Roman lived in London for a lot of times. She was very fashionable. She was very photographed. And she was about what was in fashion at that time. And I thought having that Chanel bag and kind of what that represents um, for a young woman was a great uh, kind of uh, signifier and accessory to kind of tell us kind of her, where she is, you know, for many people who in the audience, younger generations who didn't know who she was, you know, kind of the the circles she was mm-hmm. hanging in that we see with, you know, and they, they had money and uh, I just thought that it made, it was just like one of those things that yeah. was good.
1: Did you ever get to the bottom of why Roman Polanski dressed that way with the cravats? <laughs> like, I kind of think maybe she dressed him, and that was her idea of the, the jabot and everything. I with have her. no <laughs>
2: idea. But, uh, maybe Mike Myers knows. <laughs> right. From Austin Powers. Um, I, I, I have no idea. I mean, it was fashionable, right? It was Carnaby Street. They lived in London. Right. It was Carnaby Street fashion. Okay. You saw a lot of British pop bands at the time who dressed like that. The Monkeys and everything, Yeah, right? Dave Clark. Five. Um, like...
1: Well, there's a lot of you know fashion moments or sort of iconic moments that you f- that are very share and tape. but then i the the moments that stick with me are the sort of cutoffs and when she's on her own, kind of, you know, and to me, there was a moment where it sort of made me rem- it reminded me of how young she was. and then you know, and then how young Kitty Cat was. There's sort of almost like right. a they're both in sort of strike like there there was sort of a sense memory on the screen for me of those two. Yeah.
2: Well, that was on purpose for me. Like, I wanted to put her in cutoffs so that we would see just exactly that that generationally, <coughs> she's just the same as uh, the Manson girls, just uh, totally different um, happenstances, you know, different different lives. Um, the t shirt, however, wasn't my idea at all. Okay. Um, that was Pierre Quentin. He had, there was one of the young women on our set who. Was wearing like a a vintage striped t shirt, and Quinn's like, "I think she should wear that," and I was really against it oh. <laughs> because I felt that I had ne- I hadn't seen any reference of a research of anything like that that mm. Sharon wore. She wore more peasanty, more mm. feminine, and um, you know, I lost that battle. And in the end, I like it. So you know, I yeah. think it works on that level um, mm. in that scene where she's actually. I don't know if we really know it in the final cut if the audience knows it but she's packing Roman's clothes for his trip to London. Okay. Um and at home and and relax. So I think ultimately it works but people really like that costume. Yeah. There's a well I want to ask about the Manson family cuz mm-hmm. there's
1: did you what kind of archives did you draw on cuz there's not that much There's a bit in the LA I think the LA Times did some photos in the early 70s right before at the farm, I think, at the spot.
2: Like, there's actually a lot There is a, there, there is a lot? Yeah, okay. there's a lot out there. And also just that milieu mm-hmm. of young people. And I think for me, the biggest thing about the Manson family and the Manson girls is I wanted to show how young they were mm-hmm. and um, because they were very, very young. And um, my aunt lived in Topanga Canyon, uh, just at that time, and had been to Spahn Ranch, like, and had met those people, and not because she was in the Manson family, but because it was kind of this milieu of kind of hippie lifestyle, and um, I, I, obs- I really felt by like I understood, I understood that milieu of young people. Um, not necessarily what they did, but, I mean, just the, the way that they dressed and, you know, they were making um, a break with, uh, you know, the way the culture was changing and, who the, you know, these are a lot of runaways and, and, and young kids that were really, um, you know, leaving, you know, Society as we know it to kind of drop out, tune out, or tune in and drop out. Mm-hmm. And so that I really wanted it to feel real. And it's hard with the 60s and 70s because it's very easy to look retro. Mm-hmm. And I really um, tried to make choices that felt quieter.
1: Right. And with the background players too, because you have, there's, a, there's an, a lot of people to dress, you know, there's the principles that we're all thinking of, but then there's these, there are many. Big scenes like the Playboy Mansion, or the mm-hmm. close—you closed one of the streets, and there's all kinds of people just walking in the street, right, mm, in yeah. the background. So those are you have to oversee how everyone looks, yeah, and they don't—they the don't crew. all look like they don't all look like they stepped out of a 1969 catalog, right?
2: Hopefully, but yeah. Yes. No, I mean that's <laughs> what I mean. Like the point. Oh yeah, yeah, wigs and makeup and costume. Yeah, I mean we had endless, endless fittings. I had an incredible crew, and you know, uh, I amazing team of costumers and and. um fitters and shoppers and you know we had fittings are going on continually throughout the whole film um
1: are you able to be as hands-on with that with the kind of like sometimes oh, saying, yeah.
2: sometimes i'm in and out so we i figured it we figured out a space my supervisor linda foot and i so that the the background fittings could happen in close proximity to where i was doing day player and principal fittings so that i could pop in and out and they would also often do these costume parades if I was like setting up a fitting in the other room for a -hmm. principal where I'd get a, you know, they'd get five background players and do a costume parade. And I definitely did some fittings when I could, but there's 120 speaking parts in the film. So I was really fitting every single day and establishing new costumes on characters up until the last week of shooting. And it was the longest shooting schedule I'd ever been on. We started shooting in June of 2018, and we wrapped um, just we took a break for Thanksgiving and then came back for a week after Thanksgiving. Um, so it was the longest shoot I'd ever been on.
1: There are many, many characters. And I like, I look at Al Pacino and I think, was there like a Swifty Lazar kind of thing with the glasses? <laughs> or I wanted to also ask if, if, one of the characters is Maya Hawk who is mm-hmm. you know the daughter of one of his many you know mute actresses Uma Thurman, yeah. <clears throat> Uma Thurman are there was there any kind of little Easter egg in her costume that you kind of that well, was planted her. there
2: we also had um, oh, Rumor Willis Bruce right. Willis's daughter who's also part of the, the family family mm-hmm. um, and And um, Tim Ross' son has a back, he's one of the kids at Spawn Ranch. So, you know, there's a lot of like um, one of Quentin's longtime producers' uh, daughters is one of the Spawn Ranch girls and... Um, his Sally, his editor, for, who passed away for many years, her daughter, well, actually, she was in the camera department. So um, there's a lot of generational, okay. I mean, the generation, the younger generational cast was so great and so much fun from Austin Butler, who's amazing, who plays Tex. Right. And he's going to be, I want to say Elvis or something Yeah, Elvis. Now. He's going to be Elvis in the big film, Elvis yeah. thing, so... To Margaret Qualley, who plays Pussycat and I mean, it's just uh, fantastic. Quentin's casting is amazing. Um, you so when
1: you're working on something that's the biographical with the fiction in it, and you've done it, uh, you know, the fictionalized versions or you know of people's lives, or uh, do you how do you balance, kind of staying true, you know, being accurate with the narrative that's the fictional narrative or the vision of the director, like there's a W.E., for example, which is sort of posits something about Wallace and Edward, and you're working with costumes that are very, you know, sometimes literal, but also you're kind of imagining Mm. that, like staying true to the kind of the the director as opposed to history.
2: Well, when um, working with Jim Mangold on Walk the Line, he said to me, look, you know, we're... Well, actually, before that, working on The People vs. Larry Flint, I um, had a meeting with Larry Flint himself and was going, um, I, I was, <laughs> nobody accompanied me. It was just me going to have a meeting with Larry Flint, which mm-hmm. I was very young in my career and um, a little uncomfortable about at the thought. And I went to his building in Los Angeles, Larry uh, Flint Publications, and I ah. um, had a meeting with Larry Flint and he sat and went through family albums to show me uh, photos of his wife, Althea, who Courtney Love plays, passed away mm-hmm. from AIDS. And um, he, I spent about two and a half hours with him. It was so surreal where we were going through photo albums and he's telling me stories about Althea and about himself. And I saw a side of him, I, you know, a side I would never imagine. I was raised with the Feminist mother who, like, you know, was horrified when I told her I was doing the People versus Larry Flint. I explained to her it's about, you know, it's it's about the court case. It's about the court case. But anyway, um, I was just sometimes working this business, you just end up in places you just never could ever even imagine. And that was one of them. Um, And he looked at me at one point and he said, "You know, you're making a movie about my life." do what you need to make it interesting. He's like, he like basically spent two and a half hours with me telling how everything was, and then looked at me and said, but make it up if you want, if it makes a better movie. So um, I appreciated that permission, and I took that back to Milos Forman, who is the director, you know, who whatever, I don't even think he, he was like, yeah, okay. (laughs) Um, I thought it was amazing. Um, Also another very intimidating director, but... um, Jim Mangold, when we're making Walk the Line, um, and also when we're making 310 to Yuma, also with Jim Mangold, we're making Walk the Line, he made it very clear that we are not, we, while we're making a film about a real person, we're making a film, a narrative film, and that it's not about getting stuck in what was, but in serving the story that we're telling. And that, like my conversation with Mr. Flint, gave gives kind of takes the air out of the room and gives gave me per, permission to spread my wings a little bit and 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 be sensitive to the story we're telling. Mm-hmm. So which is not to say that doing the research is the most important thing so you have a fluency mm-hmm. or an idea or a through line or things about these people that would resonate and make sense when you're creating these characters and also, when talking with the actors. So, um, and Jim Angle did the same thing when we were making 310 to Yuma. He told me, please don't watch any Westerns. <laughs> um, that is a mistake. Um, and, you know, this is really, I don't care what existed. Um, you know, this is about, it, it, he, he's kind of like a theater director mm. in that the way, and if you think, if you look at his films, most of his films are in medium shots or close ups. Um, they're very intimate, um, the dialogue and the way. So he is, he, uh, you know, whether or not, Madonna's much more exacting. She directed W.E. and, um, but we take liberties. Um, you know, it's not documentary filmmaking of what is, and I think I've been lucky to work with directors who gave, and people who gave me permission mm-hmm. to, um, Brings you know Quentin too to bring something to the table. That's uh, I would say the best thing about working with Madonna for 22 years is that um, she expects you you know she expects you to bring something to the table. Uh, Tom Ford as well. When you think of these people that have that are very um, precise in their the way that they are aesthetically. Um, they're also extremely collaborative, and just being invited to collaborate on that level is is um, is really, really a gift and super lucky. And I they
1: super lucky. and they understand sort of the power of of the the visual language of clothing or fashion, depending on the context, right? They have costume
0: and well, Tom what, Madonna, yeah. for
1: sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you, you've been doing this for a while in, in film, and there, but I feel like in the last five or seven years, there has never been more coverage of costume design than there is now. And it's like certainly a part of every studio and film's marketing plan whenever possible. Do you get a feeling that the audience understands costume more than they might have you know, 15 years ago? Or do the people in the industry understand what costume design is and does? better than
2: not really no. I don't I don't think so no. unfortunately <laughs> we still have producers that are people have no idea what it takes you know it's what just it takes shopping right with. it's just shopping oh, well, that's oh, like yeah. the most offensive right as costume designers are like you know we I'm sure there's are there, are there costume there any, designers in Are there in the any audience? costume Okay, people? yeah. Yeah, like, you know, I mean, that's always the assumption, like, um, which can go me on another tangent about pay equity and costume design, and, you know, it's women's work and, you know, shopping, and you just, you know, just, just make it happen. Um, so I, I do think that the reason why there's more, we have more outlets, we have more uh, with, the internet and you know uh, reality tv people are more interested in um you know i think it's i think it's it's great to be able to talk about costume and to have a room of people that are interested it's really talking about character development mm-hmm. and about storytelling which is you know costume is one of the storytelling Aspects of filmmaking. Well, we're in this moment though,
1: where in on you think of Instagram or global visual culture, where we're we're decoding the sort of uh, semiotics of you know what a politician might be wearing and what they're conveying Mm -hmm. because maybe they don't speak very much, but they're telling us something through what they're wearing, right? The world to perceive Um, us, right? uh, When you're working on uh, tour costumes for Madonna, is there? sort of a narrative at play there. I think of the different era, the different eras of the tour, the tours that you've for done. For sure, for sure. Where you're, like, I, I'm thinking of the the tour where there was very militaristic. And the ta- uh, American the, Life. Uh, right. Where there was, yeah, and then the videos, I guess, that went with that, where there was the Che Guevara kind of
2: inflected. Uh, that album uh, was, um, uh, yeah, wait, um, the American Life single, and um, help me out here if there's uh, any Madonna, Madonna fans. Madonna's. I'm like... Uh, well, that that <laughs> particular one, yeah. um, but there, that seems like that's
1: having a that's sort of speaking to what was happening culturally too, yeah, right?
2: But, yeah, it's part, it's part of Madonna's narrative. I mean, yeah. she sees herself, you know, literally as a rebel and as a, a an artistic, you know, someone who's constantly using her voice to challenge people and to express her, to have artistic freedom, and that's part of her narrative. And that particular era um, was. Yeah, that was in the Wasn't like, that under uh right, wasn't it that was sort after of, Ray of Light? Right. way, produced that album. Yeah, it was really really great. We looked at Che Guevara and Patty Hearst and all kinds of But images. then
1: what's happening what was happening in America at the time was sort of this groundswell of like a certain kind of patriotism and sort of uh conservatism, I guess, is the yeah, thing too, and, right?
2: Uh, Desert Storm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, she is. Uh, she's had a long career of being culturally relevant. Years, thirty year, over thirty years. Yeah, it was.
1: Yeah, at least. I mean, if you can't, depending on how far back you go. Yeah, like yeah really. thirty-five years. Um, so, you're, when you design for a tour, or I guess I want to ask about designing for stage because you did Hedwig, and to me that's a perfect way of asking about the technical considerations for a film versus Hedwig on Broadway, where it's much more active. Um, can you talk a bit about the, the difference there, like the demands of the costumes that you have to create?
2: Yeah, I mean, with Hedwig, it had started at an, as an off-Broadway play, uh, which I didn't design. I, um, it came to me as a small independent film we shot in Toronto, actually. And um, that... So I didn't have the typical experience of kind of play to film, which is usually how it goes. So this was film to play, to film the theater for me. So, um, gosh, when I read that script, I I didn't understand it at all, but John Cameron Mitchell is so brilliant Mm. that I just was like, I'm gonna follow, I believe you. Like, there's animation here, and you know, it was just so confusing to me, Um, and it was like the most important experience, I would say, of my whole career. Um, just in terms of, I had been working on a big studio film, um, and I quit before I got fired. And it was it was a film I didn't want to do. I kind of got seduced into it, and I kind of went against what I thought was right for me. And I quit before I probably was going to get fired to go do Hedwig, which I had been... Um, I had I knew I knew I was gonna do the, a year before we shot it. And it was so great. And I was in Toronto. I had um two people in my crew. I was bedazzling myself. I was cutting up wigs myself. for the hairdress or whatever. Yes, yeah. we okay. used wigs. Before and... or after Margiela did his hairdress, was that I don't even know. No, okay. I don't know. Oh, but um and and that really helped me kind of get back to what was important for me and that what Hedwig is about at the core um, was kind of Rocky Horror Picture Show was such a big deal for me when I was a teenager um, just in terms of adolescence and figuring out who I was and um self-expression and, and be, um, you know androgyny and sexuality, all these, these crazy themes at 13, going to see Rocky Horror Picture Show and dressing up. And it was so celebratory and it was such a big part of my identity as a young person to figure out who I was creatively. And Hedwig was kind of my, my, my Rocky Horror Picture Show, as well as everyone else on the set, because it, what it's about, you know, being true to yourself, Mm -hmm. uh, the message in the film, uh, the transformation, the humor, the pathos, um, and the sheer brilliance of of John Cameron Mitchell. And and it was a teeny tiny film, you know, we shot in 28 days, um, and it just kind of put me back into why I wanted to be a costume designer and be a filmmaker. Um, And uh, it was so... I don't know. I didn't answer questions. Um But and you and you kept the costumes. You that's yes, very I not that's that's atypical, right? You typically wouldn't. Well, I made wouldn't... that deal with them. Okay. So I'm not going to tell you what film I I quit before I got fired. No, I'm not going to ask you. You can ask me one later. On one, but I um, went before I left that film, and I stole back a bunch of costumes because I knew I was. I literally filled my cart. I asked the <laughs> costume designer who was replacing me if he was going to use my my Costumes that I had amassed. And he said, No, no, no. I actually had lunch with him. It was a very happy thing that I was leaving. (laughs) And so I'm like, Okay, well, look the other way. And I went on my last day and I filled my car up with these costumes because I had scoured all these amazing vintage pieces. I had gone to a warehouse in um, St. Louis uh, called Hullabaloo, which doesn't exist anymore. And I had spent 10 days like mining. You know, and looking, scavenging for these great pieces. So I took them to Canada and took them, pulled them apart, redyed them, sewed them back together, bedazzled them, whatever. Um, and that was the way that I could afford, because there's no money for those costumes. Um, we did some thrifting, I think, in Toronto as well. But um, my deal with the producers was, look, I'm going to own these co- like. I want to own these costumes. Um, so I've actually auctioned a couple of them for different charities, mm-hmm. um, like for the, when Gay Marriage was um, the uh, Yes on Eight, and we did a couple, Mike Potter, the guy who created the Hedwig wig. Um, We've done some stuff, but I still have a few of them at home. Did you use them as reference then, to sort of, because people oh, want to, play. Because
1: people want to, people, there's a bit of, people want to see those, even if they're, you know, Writ large and differently, right? I'd like right? to
2: like give them somewhere where they'd be displayed. Yeah. But you mean you mean did I reference them for mm-hmm. the for the the Broadway yes. version yeah. with Neil Patrick Harris? Um, yeah, because the costume, the denim costume, that's the main costume in the Broadway show. Um, the idea of that costume was mm, it doesn't I, it, um, Hedwig is uh, kind of has a sex change to leave um, East Berlin, which sounds crazy, before the wall went down. It works in the movie, though. Yeah. That's what's the, the, that's what matters, right? So, yeah. yeah. And so that costume is kind of in, uh, was part of, so I knew that denim costume was going to be a key costume um, in the play because it's, and I wanted to make that costume uh, like the Berlin wall. My husband and I had been to Berlin and um, seen those, you know the pieces of the wall that they have there that you can still see with the, all the graffiti and everything. And I wanted the Broadway costume to have that effect. Um, you don't have the luxury, obviously, in theater to do those kind of as many costume changes or that many scenes. And um, Neil Patrick Harris, who uh, who who did started the role. We had a few people: um, Michael C. Hall, John Cameron Mitchell, Andrew Reynolds, Darren Chris, who all ended up playing Hedwig. But they never leave the stage that much right. to change. Then we have the hair oh, so that's from the movie, right. um, And that's like thrifted, and I think we I, th- I believe we made the T-shirt. but um, uh, yeah, so yeah, and then we had the hair, the hair right. coat, the, the hairdress, hair right? we just it was just
1: more distilled down, right. Um, before we open up to audience questions, you, you mentioned uh, auctioning some of the pieces for charity. And am I right in understanding that you designed the Times Up logo? And mm-hmm. is that right? Yeah, by yeah, default. By yeah. default. And oh. so you're very active in um, red carpet philanthropy right now, and I, with the rad, and with just generally, you're agitating all over the place. But you're, but, the, but with rad, which is red.
2: Uh, RAD Rat, stands for Red Carpet Advocacy, Advocacy which okay. is uh, um, uh, an endeavor that I launched in January with uh, uh, with my business partner, Karina Martin, and it's uh, about social progress, really, it's about using platforms, uh, it, it just, uh, I came to a point, I think actually, you know, being around Madonna, every time Madonna would go to Africa to, um, she's built a couple schools and orphanages and uh, a surgery, pediatric surgery unit in Malawi, Africa, and every time she would go and invite me, I was running off to go do a film or to do something else. And I started to feel that I wanted to. And also, our election happened, and uh, we all know. I, I mean, that just was like the the bubble. Like we, I have to do something. And um, so I launched this um, endeavor called RAD, Red Carpet Advocacy, and we help talent raise money and um, create advocacy for uh, nonprofits and causes that they believe in. And we do it um, on the red carpet and beyond. Like recently, we just had a dinner for Patricia Arquette to celebrate her two um, Emmy nominations Mm -hmm. uh, last week. Um, And we had a dinner. We brought uh, Brandon to... um, make a donation to her charity. She has a charity called givelove.org. I did the same with Margot Robbie once upon a time in Hollywood. So the idea is to to figure out ways to be philanthropic and create advocacy along the promotional road of what we do anyway. So um because right, that's such a part of the business. Like it's it's sort of an unavoidable part. So why
1: not leverage it? Yeah,
2: way. and I right. think, you know, everybody has platforms now, you know, everybody has uh, social media and can talent especially talks directly to their, well, we all can talk to our fans and followers and um, people are just, you know, it's just a way to be um, purposeful and not so promotional and to inspire people, kind of how we elected Obama um, in the States, like $5 here and $10 here. That's really about how we move the needle. And um, it's just, we live in a, especially in the states, in a time where whether it's the environment or our hor- horrible um, situation with our president, um, we, we everybody has to do something to make the world better. And I don't, I don't, I've never really had the time to join, join a charity. I've tried to, and then I end up traveling or, or this and that. And I don't really feel like I ever really have made enough money to to write a you know, check. Or so it's mm-hmm. just a way to kind of leverage the those moments when all everybody's watching on the red carpet or whatever to do some good and the the red carpet is also sort of it's it's a lot
1: the the focus is a lot on women you know it's it's sort of this liminal economy like it's this ecosystem where women get to sort of they're both looked at and it's also women who are sort of paying attention to that in oh, an interesting men way. way, it's I meant to now, I mean, but we also
2: don't want to take like everybody. No. It, uh, you know, I love the fashion on the red carpet. I love, you know, um, you know, and it's not just award shows. It's you know,
0: premieres. Going to Starbucks
2: is a red carpet moment now <laughs> for people. I mean, that's it's captured on. Yeah, so, yeah. selfie culture, yeah. So. and it's just you know, like when we launched with Elizabeth Moss at um, the Golden Globes this past year, and she wanted to advocate for the ACLU, so we helped get all the messaging from the ACLU of what they were working at the time, which was families at the border. And um, we um, asked the designers who she was wearing, her Christian Dior dress and her Tamara Mellon shoes, if they wanted to support. And we created like a social media campaign where we, Elizabeth, you know, has a call, tells her fans about the ACLU and, and, what they're working on at that time, and and um, how it's important to get involved, and how they can get involved, and if you want to make a donation, swipe up five dollars helps. You know, you know, get a get a you know whatever at the time. Yeah, so, whatever it might be. So. But it's been really, really. Uh, I actually. Uh, it was we were incubating it when uh, we were shooting Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, um, Karina, my partner and I, and it's been uh, incredible nine months and it's really been f- really uh, wonderful to be able to have different conversations with talent now about you know, what people um, care about and how we can make the world a better place really by using our platform. The, the tools at your disposal basically.
1: Well, I think we have to wrap up, so I want to say uh, thank you very much um, to the twice Academy Award nominated um, Ariane Phillips for this really interesting. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this conversation recorded live from the Vancouver International Film Festival. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Creator Talks and Masterclasses are programmed by Fran Bergen. The podcast is created by Ellen Hadley and Clem Lobay on the unceded territories of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh Nation.